0: Chapter twelve of the Gold Hunters by james oliver curwood This LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by roger Moline chapter twelve Wabi makes a strange discovery Mukoki broke the silence which followed the terrible cry with a choking sound as if some unseen hand were clutching at his throat He slipped from the rock upon which he was sitting and crouched behind it, his rifle gleaming faintly as he leveled it down the chasm. There came the warning click of Wabigawan's gun, and the young Indian hunched himself forward until he was no more than an indistinct shadow in the fast-deepening gloom of night. Only Rod still sat erect. For a moment his heart seemed to stand still then something leaped into his brain and spread like fire through his veins calling him to his feet trembling with the knowledge of what that cry had told him it was not a lesson from the wilderness that roderick drew was learning now as fast as the mind could travel he had gone far back into the strife and misery and madness of civilization and there he found the language of that fearful cry floating up the chasm he had heard it once twice yes again and again and the memory of it had burned deep down into his soul he turned to his companions trying to speak but the horror that had first filled mukoki now fastened itself on him and his tongue was lifeless a madman wabi's fingers dug into his arm like the claws of a bear a what a madman repeated rod trying to speak more calmly the man who shot the bear and fired at mukoki and who uses gold bullets in his gun is mad raving mad i have heard those screams before in the eloise insane asylum near detroit he's the words were frozen on his lips again the cry echoed up the chasm it was nearer this time and with a sobbing, terrified sound, something that Wabi had never heard fall from Mukoki's lips before, the old warrior clung to Roderick's arm. Darkness hid the terror in his face, but the white boy could feel it in the grip of his hands. "'Mad! Raving mad!' he cried. Suddenly he gripped Mukoki fiercely by the shoulders, and as Wabigawan crouched forward, Ready to fire at the first movement in the gloom, he thrust the butt of his rifle in his back. "'Don't shoot!' he commanded. "'Mukoki, don't be a fool! That's a man back there, a man who has suffered and starved—starved, mind you, until he's mad—stark mad. It would be worse than murder to kill him.' He stopped, and Mukoki drew back a step, breathing deeply. Him starve, no eat, gone bad dog?' he questioned softly. In an instant Wabi was at his side. "'That's it, Mookie, he's gone bad dog, just like that husky of ours who went bad because he swallowed a fish bone. White men sometimes go bad dog when they are thirsty and starving.' "'Our great spirit tells us that we must never harm them,' added Rod. We put them in big houses, larger than all of the houses at the post together, and feed them and clothe them and care for them all their lives. Are you afraid of a bad dog, Mookie, or of a man who has gone bad dog? Bad dog, bite deep. Maybe so we will kill him. But we don't kill them until we have to," persisted the quick-witted Wabigowan, who saw the way in which Rod's efforts were being directed. Didn't we save our husky by taking the fish bone out of his throat? We must save this bad dog, because he is a white man, like Rod. He thinks all men are his enemies, just as a bad dog thinks all other dogs are his enemies. So we must be careful and not give him a chance to shoot us, but we mustn't harm him." "'It will be best if we don't let him know we're in the chasm,' said Rod, still speaking for Mukoki's benefit. "'He's probably going out on the plain and must climb up this break in the mountain. "'Let's move our stuff a little out of his path.' As the two boys went to the canoe, their hands touched. Wabi was startled by the coldness of his friend's fingers. "'We've fixed Mukoki,' he whispered. "'He won't shoot, but—' "'We may have to,' replied Rod. "'That will be up to you and me, Wabi.' "'We must use judgment, and unless it's a case of life or death—' "'Oh!' shuddered the young Indian. "'If he doesn't discover our presence tonight, we will get out of his way tomorrow,' continued Rod. "'No fire, no talking. We must be as still as death.' For some time after their outfit was concealed among the rocks, Wabigoon sat with his mouth close to the old pathfinder's ear, Then he returned to Rod. Mookie understands. He has never seen or heard of a madman, and it is hard for him to comprehend. But he knows, now, and understands what he must do. "'Shh! What is it?' "'I thought I heard a sound,' breathed Rod. "'Did you hear it?' "'No.' The two listened." There was an awesome silence in the chasm now, broken only by the distant murmur of running water, a strange chilling stillness in which the young hunters could hear the excited beating of their own hearts. To Roderick the minutes passed like so many hours. His ears were keyed to the highest tension of expectancy. His eyes stared into the gloom beyond them until they ached with his efforts to see. At every instant he expected to hear again that terrible scream, this time very near, and he prepared himself to meet it. But the seconds passed, and then the minutes, and still there came no quick running of mad footsteps, no repetition of the cry. Had the madman turned the other way? Was he plunging deeper into the blackness of this mysterious world of his between the mountains? I guess I was mistaken, he whispered softly to Wabigoon. Shall we get out our blankets? We might as well make ourselves comfortable, replied the young Indian. You sit here and listen while I undo the pack. He went noiselessly to Mukoki, who was leaning against the pack, and Rod could hear them fumbling at the straps on the bundle. After a little, wabi returned and the two boys spread out their blankets beside the rock upon which they had been sitting but there was no thought of sleep in the mind of either though both were dead tired from their long day's work they sat closer together shoulder touching shoulder and unknown to his companion roderick drew his revolver cocked it silently and placed it where he could feel the cold touch of its steel between his fingers he knew that he was the only one of the three who fully realized the horror of their situation. Mukoki's mind, simple in its reasoning of things that did not belong to the wilderness, had accepted the assurances and explanations of Rod and Wabigowan Wabi, half-bred in the wild, felt alarm only in the sense of physical peril. It was different with the white youth, what is there in civilization that sends the chill of terror to one's heart more quickly than the presence of a human being who has gone mad and this madman was at large at that very instant he might be listening to their breathing and their whispered words half a dozen feet away any moment might see the blackness take form and the terrible thing hurl itself at their throats rod unlike wabigoon knew that the powers of this strange creature of the chasm were greater than their own, that it could travel with the swiftness and silence of an animal through the darkness, that perhaps it could smell them and feel their presence as it passed on its way to the plain. He was anxious now to hear the cry again. What was the meaning of this silence? Was the madman already conscious of their presence? Was he creeping upon them at that moment? as still as the black shadows that shut in their vision?" His mind was working in such vivid imaginings that he was startled when Wabi prodded him gently in the side. "'Look, over there, across the chasm,' he whispered. "'See that glow on the mountain wall?' "'The moon,' replied Rod. "'Yes. I've been watching it, and it's creeping down and down the moon is going to swing across this break in the mountains in fifteen minutes we shall be able to see it won't swing across so much as it will come up in line with us replied rod watch how that light is lengthening we shall be able to see for several hours he started to rise to his feet but fell back with an astonished cry for a third time there came the mad hunter's scream this time far above and beyond them, floating down from the distance of the moonlit plain. "'He passed us!' exclaimed Wabi. "'He passed us, and we didn't hear him!' He leaped to his feet, and his voice rose excitedly, until it rang in a hundred echoes between the chasm walls. "'He passed us, and we didn't hear him!' Mukoki's voice came strangely from out of the gloom. "'No man do that! No man! No man!' "'Hush!' commanded Rod. "'Now is our time, boys. Quick, get everything to the creek. He's half a mile out on the plain, and we can get away before he comes back.' "'I'd rather risk a few rocks than another one of his golden bullets.' "'So had I!' cried Wabi. As if their lives depended on their exertions, the three set to work. Mukoki staggered ahead over the rocks with his burden while the boys followed with the light canoe and the remaining pack. Their previous experiences in the chasm had taught them where to approach the stream, and ten minutes later they were at its side. Without a moment's hesitation, Mukoki dropped his pack and plunged in, the edge of the moon was just appearing over the southern mountain wall and by its light rod and wabigoon could see that the water of the creek was rushing with great swiftness as high as the old warrior's knees no very deep said the indian rocks i followed this creek for half a dozen miles and its bottom is as smooth as a floor interrupted rod there's no danger of rocks for that distance He made no effort now to suppress the pleasure which he felt at the escape from their unpleasant situation. Mukoki steadied the canoe as it was placed in the water and was the last to climb into it, taking his usual position in the stern, where he could use to best advantage the powerful sweeps of his paddle. In an instant, the swift current of the little stream caught the birch bark and carried it along with remarkable speed. After several futile strokes of his paddle, Wabi settled back upon his heels. "'It's all up to you, Mookie,' he called softly. "'I can't do a thing from the bow. The current is too swift. All you can do is keep her nose straight.' The light of the moon was now filling the chasm, and the adventurers could see distinctly for a hundred yards or more ahead of them. Each minute seemed to add to the swiftness and size of the stream, and by the use of his paddle, Wabi found that it was constantly deepening until he could no longer touch bottom. Rod's eyes were ceaselessly on the alert for familiar signs along the shore. He was sure that he knew when they passed the spot where he killed the silver fox, and he called Wabi's attention to it. Then the rocks sped past with increasing swiftness and as the moon rose higher the three could see where the overflowing torrent sent out little streams that twisted and dashed themselves into leaping foam in the wildness of the chasm beyond the main channel these increased in number and size as the journey continued until mukoki began to feel the influence of their currents and called on wabi and rod for assistance suddenly rod gave a muffled shout as they shot past a mass of huge boulders on their right. "'That's where I camped the night I dreamed of the skeletons,' he cried. "'I don't know what the stream is like from here on. Be careful!' Wabi gave a terrific lunge with his paddle, and the cone of a black rock hissed past half a canoe length away. "'It's as black as a dungeon ahead, and I can hear rocks,' he shouted. "'Bring her in if you can, Muky. Bring her in!' There came the sudden sharp crack of snapping wood, and a low exclamation of alarm fell from Mukoki. His paddle had broken at the shaft. In a flash, Rod realized what had happened and passed back his own, but that moment's loss of time proved almost fatal. Freed of its guiding hand, the birch bark swung broadside to the current, and at the same time, Wabi's voice rose in a shrill cry of warning. "'It's not rocks! It's a whirlpool!' he yelled. "'The other shore! Swing her out! Swing her out!' He dug his own paddle deep down into the racing current, and from behind, Mukoki exerted his most powerful efforts. But it was too late. A hundred feet ahead, the stream tore between two huge rocks as big as houses, and just beyond these Rod caught a glimpse of frothing water churning itself milk-white in the moonlight. But it was only a glimpse. With a velocity that was startling the canoe shot between the rocks, and as a choking sea of spray leaped into their faces, Wabigoon's voice came back again in a loud command for the others to hang to the gunnels of their frail craft. For an instant, in which his thoughts seemed to have left him, a roaring din filled Rod's ears. A white, churning mist hid everything but his own arms and clutching hands, and then the birch bark darted with the sudden impetus of a freshly shot arrow around the jagged edge of the boulder, and he could see again. Here was the whirlpool. More than once, Wabi had told him of these treacherous traps made by the mountain streams, and of the almost certain death that awaited the unlucky canoe-man drawn into their smothering embrace. There was no angry raging of the flood here. At first it seemed to Rod that they were floating almost without motion upon a black, lazy sea that made neither sound nor riffle. Scarce half a dozen canoe lengths away, he saw the white center of the maelstrom, and there came to his ears above the dash of the stream between the two great rocks a faint hissing sound that curdled the blood in his veins the hissing of the treacherous undertow that would soon drag them to their death in the passing of a thought there flashed into the white youth's mind a story that mukoki had told him of an indian who had been lost in one of these whirlpools of the spring floods and whose body had been tossed and pitched about in its center for more than a week for the first time the power of speech came to him shall we jump he shouted hang to the canoe wabi fairly shrieked the words and yet as he spoke he drew himself half erect as if about to leap into the flood the momentum gathered in its swift rush between the rocks had carried their frail craft almost to the outer edge of the deadly trap and as this momentum ceased and the canoe yielded to the sucking forces of the maelstrom the young indian shrieked out his warning again hang to the canoe the words were scarcely out of his mouth when he stood erect and launched himself like an animal into the black depths toward shore with a terrified cry rod rose to his knees in another instant he would have plunged recklessly after Wabi, but Mukoki's voice sounding behind him, snarling in its fierceness, stopped him. Hang to canoe! There came a jerk. The bow of the canoe swung inward, and the stern whirled so quickly that Rod, half-kneeling, nearly lost his balance. In that instant he turned his face and saw the old warrior standing, as Wabigawan had done before him, And as Mukoki leaped, there came for a third time that warning cry, HANG TO CANOE! And Rod hung. He knew that for some reason those commands were meant for him, and him alone. He knew that the desperate plunges of his comrades were not inspired by cowardice or fear, but not until the birch bark ground upon the shore and he tumbled out in safety did he fully comprehend what had happened. Holding the rope with which they tied their canoe, Wabigoon had taken a desperate chance. His quick mind had leaped like a flash of powder to their last hope, and at the crucial moment, just as the momentum of the birch bark gave way to the whirling forces of the pool, he had jumped a good seven feet toward shore and had found bottom. Another twelve inches of water under him and all would have been lost. Wabigoon stood panting and dripping wet, and in the moonlight his face was as white as the tub-like spot of foam out in the center of the maelstrom. "'That's what you call going to kingdom come and getting out again,' he gasped. "Muki, that was the closest shave we've ever had. It has your avalanche beaten to a frazzle.' Mukoki was dragging the canoe upon the pebbly shore and still overcome by the suddenness of all that had happened, Rod went to his assistance. The adventurers now discovered themselves in a most interesting situation. The night had indeed been one of curious and thrilling happenings for them, and here was a pretty climax to it all. They had escaped the mad hunter by running into the almost fatal grip of the whirlpool, and now they had escaped the perils of that seething death trap by plunging into a tiny rock-bound prison which seemed destined to hold them for all time or at least until the floods of spring subsided straight above them and shutting them in entirely rose precipitous rock walls on the only open side was the deadly maelstrom even mukoki as he glanced about him was struck by the humor of their situation and chuckled softly Wabi stood with his hands deep in his soaked pockets, facing the moonlit walls. Then he turned to Rod and grinned. Then he faced the whirlpool, and after that his eyes swept the space of sky above them. The situation was funny at first, but when he looked at the white youth again, the smile had died out of his face. "'Wouldn't that madman have fun if he found us now?' he whispered. Mukoki was traveling slowly around the rock walls. The space in which they were confined was not more than fifty feet in diameter, and there was not even a crack by means of which a squirrel might have found exit. The prison was perfect. The old pathfinder came back and sat down with a grunt. "'We might as well have supper and a good sleep,' suggested Rod, who was hungry. "'Surely we need fear no attack from beast or man tonight.' At least there was this consolation, and the gold hunters ate a hearty meal of cold bear-meat and prepared for slumber. The night was unusually warm, and both Mukoki and Wabigawan hung out their wet clothes to dry while they slept in their blankets. Rod did not open his eyes again until Wabi awakened him in the morning. Both Indians were dressed, and it was evident that they had been up for some time. When Rod went to the water to wash himself, he was surprised to find all of their supplies repacked in the canoe, as though their journey was about to be resumed immediately after breakfast, and when he returned to where Mukoki and Wabigawan had placed their food on a flat stone in the center of what he had regarded as their prison, he observed that both of his companions were in an unusually cheerful frame of mind. "'Looks as though you expected to get out of here pretty soon,' he said, nodding toward the canoe. "'So we do,' responded Wabi. "'We're going to take a swim through the whirlpool.' He laughed at the incredulity in Rod's face. "'That is, we're going to navigate along the edge of it,' he amended. "'Mookie and I have tied together every bit of rope and strap in our outfit, even to our gun slings, and we've got a piece about eighty feet long we'll show you how to use it after breakfast it took but a few minutes to dispose of the rather unappetizing repast of cold bear meat biscuits and water wabi then led the way to the extreme edge of the great rock which formed the eastern wall of their prison waded in the water to his knees and directed rod's gaze to a point of land jutting out into the stream about sixty feet beyond the rock ''If we can reach that,'' explained Wabi, ''we can portage around the rest of the whirlpool to the main channel. The water is very deep along the edge of this rock, but the undertow doesn't seem to have any great force. I believe that we can make it. The experiment won't be a dangerous one, at any rate.'' The canoe was now dragged to the edge of the rock and launched, Mukoki taking his place in the stern while Wabigoon placed Rod a little ahead of the midship rib. "'You must paddle on your left side every minute and as fast as you can,' advised the young Indian. "'I am to remain behind, holding one end of this rope, so that if you are drawn toward the maelstrom I can pull you back. Understand?' "'Yes, but you—how—' "'Oh, I'll swim,' said Wabi, in rank bravado.' I don't mind a little whirlpool like that at all. Mukoki chuckled in high humor, and Roderick asked no more questions, but at Wabi's command dug in his paddle and kept at it until the birch bark safely made the point of land beyond the rock. When he looked back, Wabi had tied the rope around his body and was already waist-deep in the water. At a signal from Mukoki, the young indian plunged fearlessly into the edge of the whirlpool and like a great floundering fish he was quickly pulled across to safety most of his clothes had been brought over in the canoe and after wabigoon had exchanged his wet garments for these the adventurers were ready to continue their journey down the chasm a short portage brought them to the main channel of the stream where they once more launched their birch bark "'If the whole trip is as exciting as this, we'll never reach our gold,' said Wabi, as they slipped out into the swift current. "'A madman, a whirlpool, and a prison, all in one night, is almost more than we can stand.' "'There is a good deal of truth in the old saying that it never rains but it pours,' replied Rod. "'Maybe we'll have smooth sailing from now on.' "'Maybe.' grunted the old pathfinder from behind. Rod's optimism was vindicated for that day at least. Until noon the canoe sped swiftly down the chasm without mishap. The stream, to which each mile added its contribution of flood water from the mountain tops, increased constantly in width and depth, but only now and then was there a rock to threaten their progress, and no driftwood at all. When the gold-seekers landed for dinner, they were confident of two things, that they had passed far beyond the mad hunter's reach, and were very near to the first waterfall. Memory of the thrilling experiences through which they had so recently run the gauntlet was replaced by the most exciting anticipation of the sound and sight of that first waterfall, which was so vitally associated with their search for the lost treasure this time a hearty dinner was cooked and it took more than an hour to prepare and eat it when the journey was resumed mukoki placed himself in the bow his sharp eyes scanning the rocks and mountain walls ahead of him two hours after the start he gave an exultant exclamation and raised a warning hand above his head the three listened faintly above the rush of the swift current there came to their ears the distant rumble of falling water forgetful now of the madman back in the chasm oblivious of everything but the fact that they had at last reached the first of the three falls which were to lead them to the gold wabi gave a whoop that echoed and re-echoed between the mountain walls and rod joined him with all the power of his lungs mukoki grinned chuckled in his curious way and a few moments later signaled Wabi to guide the canoe ashore. "'We portage here,' he explained. "'Current swift there. Maybe go over fall.' A short carry of two or three hundred yards brought them to the cataract. It was, as Mukoki had said after his long trip of exploration a few months before, a very small fall, not more than a dozen feet in height but over it there was now rushing a thundering deluge of water. An easy trail led to the stream below it, and no time was lost in getting under way again. Although they had traveled fully forty miles since morning, the day had been an easy and most interesting one for the three adventurers. On the swift current of the chasm stream they had worked but little, and the ceaseless change of scenery in this wonderful break between the mountain ridges held an ever-increasing fascination for them. Late in the afternoon, the course changed from its northeasterly direction to due north, and at this point there was an ideal spot for camping. Over an extent of an acre or more, there was a sweeping hollow of fine white sand, with great quantities of dry wood cluttering the edge of the Depression. "'That's a curious spot!' said Wabi, as they drew up their canoe. "'Looks like—' "'A lake!' grunted Mukoki. "'Long time ago, a lake. "'The curve of the stream right here has swept up so much sand "'that the water can't get into it,' added Rod, looking the place over. "'Wabi had gone a few paces back. "'Suddenly he stopped, and with a half-shout, he gesticulated excitedly to his companions. Something in his manner took Rod and Mukoki to him on the run. When they came up, the Indian youth stood mutely pointing at something in the sand. Clearly imprinted in that sand was the shape of a human foot, a foot that had worn neither boot nor moccasin when it left its trail in the lake bed, but which was as naked as the quivering hand which Wabigawan now held toward it. And from that single footprint, the eyes of the astonished adventurers traveled quickly to a hundred others, and it seemed to them that a dozen naked savages must have been dancing in these sands only a few hours before. And Rod, glancing toward the driftwood, saw something else, something toward which he pointed, speechless, white with that same strange excitement that had taken possession of Wabigoon. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Roger Moline.